Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everybody. Uh, happy December the 11th. The news uh, remains, at least on the environmental front, quite troubling. Uh, Greta Thunberg yesterday uh, in an interview with The Guardian uh, suggested we're speeding in the wrong direction. All sorts of ominous signs in California, where I live. California now has a new market uh, to hedge against record droughts, water futures. So water now is a future being traded on the global markets. Um, on the other hand, uh, the news might not entirely be bad. Eric Holthouse, uh, a geographer who's been on our show before, has a tweet today suggesting that in 2020, global carbon emissions fell by 6.7%. One of the reasons, of course, for that may indeed be the slowing down of the global economy, global capitalism in the COVID crisis. A couple of weeks ago, we had the French economist, Lucas Chancel, on the show talking about the intimate, in his view, the intimate relationship between social justice and global warming and the environment, arguing that capitalism and the inequalities of capitalism is profoundly contributing to our environmental crisis. Uh, Chancel, as any economist, had wonderful charts to support his argument. In contrast, earlier this year, we had my old friend from MIT, Andrew McAfee, uh, on the show, uh, arguing that technology will result in, in his new book, which is entitled More From Less. So is indeed capitalism the savior or the curse of the environment? My guest today, uh, Jason Hickel, or Hickel, um, depending uh, whether he's talking to his friends or not. Jason, is it Hickel or Hickel? It's Hickel. Hickel. Jason no. Hickel has a new book out really taking McAfee on uh, full frontal. Uh, McAfee's book is called More From Less. Jason's book is called Less Is More. I'm not sure whether you specifically titled your book, Jason, in response to McAfee's argument. Uh, the subtitle of your book is How Degrowth Will Save the World. Would it be fair to say, uh, Jason, that you fall into the, the Chancel camp who see capitalism and the environment or a, a good environment and capitalism as essentially being incompatible? Yes, I think I probably would. Um, I should say, first of all, that I did not title uh, the book in response to McAfee's work. Um, I don't think about him that much, <laughs> uh, but I hope that readers will well, think I, about it. If, if Andrew's watching, I think about you all the time, Andy, so at least someone's <laughs> talking about you. I'm sure he's a great guy. Um, I have a lot of respect for he's him. He's a lovely guy, very passionate though. And actually it'd be great to bring the two of you together for a debate. I could see some interesting fireworks. But anyway, back to your book, Less Is More. 
Yeah, so um, so to your question, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think that, uh, that we do have to think about the extent to which capitalism is driving the problem that we're facing in terms of ecological breakdown. You know, I mean, and this is a multi-front crisis, right? It's not just, um, you know, climate change, but it's also mass rates of deforestation and soil depletion and mass extinction, et cetera, et cetera. Like, this is a multi-front ecological crisis. Um, now, we call this the Anthropocene. But in fact, that's kind of a misnomer, right? Because it's not humans as such that are causing this problem. Rather, it's a very particular economic system, capitalism, that's actually only been around for about 500 years at most, right? And of course, humans have been on this planet for 300,000 years. So, so this is important to understand. Now, now when we talk about capitalism, um, a lot of people just assume that, that that's just about markets and trade and businesses and so on. But in fact, that's not quite true. Um, we know that markets and trade and even businesses uh, were around for hundreds, if not thousands of years prior to capitalism. So what makes capitalism distinctive in human history is that it's the first and only intrinsically expansionary economic system. So it requires perpetual growth just to stay afloat. If it ever doesn't grow, um, then that's called a recession and everything collapses, right? Like people lose their jobs. Poverty well, rates Jason, rise. hold on. Let me, before you get to the core of your argument, let's get your analysis of the current state of the global environment of the, the state of the planet mm. um last month we also had the 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 the, the french environmentalist uh, uh thomas larue on he has a new book the contamination of the earth he argues that after 1973 like thunberg's argument we're charging headlong into the abyss in your view is the planet on the verge of extinction well, not the planets, but uh, but but um, the biosphere is in real trouble, um, and we're beginning to see this now. We're only at one degree, one point one degrees of warming right now. Uh, on our present trajectory, even if all nations uphold their commitments under the Paris Agreement, we're headed for over three degrees of warming by the end of the century, and and that is uh, pretty catastrophic. We're looking at thirty to fifty percent of species going extinct hundreds of millions of people being displaced. And, and the introduction to your book is is very chilling, where you lay yes. this out. Eric Holthouse does it in his book, many other people, but I thought you did a particularly good job warning people of the consequences of, of, of things if we continue on this trajectory. So you're really, you're echoing Thunberg and many other environmental activists. Is that fair? Uh, the activists, you know, t take them or leave them. I'm, I'm echoing the scientists, right? So I spend a lot of, a lot of my time reading IPCC reports and reading uh, the peer-reviewed literature on this. And this is Kind of my assessment of the of the consensus in the academic literature. So that's that's what I'm that's what I'm going on here. What I represent in the book is uh, is is consensus opinion among scientists. Well, lots of people always argue that everyone thinks they're in the right. I, I tend to agree with you. I'm certainly sympathetic emotionally uh, and politically. What I liked about your book, Jason, is it's not just a series of charts. If it was, I probably wouldn't have had you on the show. We've got these charts and as we know with charts and data, they can always be used to support someone's argument. Your argument's more historical. You begin in the Middle Ages. We had Joel Kotkin on the show um, a couple of months ago, the, uh, the Southern Californian geographer who argues that we're reverting to feudalism in terms of the economic inequalities, particularly of the digital age. And you have a, a what I thought at least was a very unique take on the history of feudalism in terms of the environment and land. What is it, Jason? 
Oh, right. So um, it's interesting. We have this story we tell ourselves that, uh, that, I mean, feudalism, of course, was a disaster. Let's first get that clear. It was a human and ecological disaster. Um, but we have this story we tell ourselves that capitalism somehow destroyed feudalism. Um, and we don't see a break between the two of them. But in reality, um, what destroyed feudalism was a series of successful pe you know, peasant revolutions that managed to, to, bring uh, to bring land back under the control of um, local communities, uh, reduced the power of nobles and lords, um, and introduced a kind of democratic society that was much more ecological and much fairer. So we saw wages rise, we saw um, health indicators improve, life expectancy improve, et cetera, et cetera. Then what happened was, was that the, um, the elites who were, uh, were on the back foot as a consequence of these revolutions um, had to find some way of restoring their access to surplus extraction and, and accumulation. And they did that through a process of widespread enclosure across Europe, basically kicking peasants off the land um, and forcing them into a position of uh, highly exploited wage labor. And this provided the, the basic grist for, for capitalism to rise, right? So if you ever wondered why, like how the vast majority of the population in the world um, became wage laborers for capital, um, it's because of this process of enclosure, which under colonialism was pushed all around the rest of the world as well. So in fact, capitalism um, destroyed the revolution that destroyed feudalism rather than destroying feudalism itself. And, and, and this is why capitalism actually has a number of key um, feudal characteristics, uh, extreme levels of inequality and mass dispossession amongst those who, who, um, who are laborers or poor. There's certainly a, 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 a Marxist or at least a cultural Marxist element to, um, to your argument, which suggests that capitalism seems to be the root of all, our, all evil, particularly environmental evil. Is that fair in terms of your book? Well, again, it really means it really depends on what you mean by capitalism. And so, what I'm trying to what point out here. Uh, so, for me, the, the key distinguishing feature of capitalism um, is uh, is the fact that it relies on perpetual expansion, right? And and this is what gets us in ecological trouble. Right. So, right. So, so, really, there's nothing wrong with markets, nothing wrong with businesses, nothing wrong with trade, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff is innocent enough in and of it, in and of itself. When you have an economic system that is programmed for perpetual expansion. Uh, on an exponential curve, this becomes an ecological problem. And that's what we need to start thinking about. We have this assumption in neoclassical economics that every sector of the economy must grow all the time indefinitely, whether or not we actually need it to, even in the richest of countries, which is clearly an irrational um, and ecologically insane way to run an economy. We should be able to have an open conversation about what sectors we actually want to expand because we need them, like renewable energy or public transportation, and what sectors we actually you know, need, to, need to scale down um, that are ecologically destructive and socially less necessary. So SUV production, you know, industrial beef production, you know, private jets, arms, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. Like there are huge chunks of our economy that really don't need to be growing. Um, and you know, a more rational democratic approach to our crisis would be to think about scaling some of that down. Jason, you also have a, a, a philosophical take on it. You seem to suggest that we've taken a, a philosophical wrong turn. You contrast the animist philosophy of Spinoza with the dualism of Descartes. Uh, you argue that, uh, that it was this D Descartian um, philosophy that bound up with capitalism that resulted in the exploitation of nature. I'm quoting you, you say, ultimately capitalism, capitalism requires a new story about nature. Why is Spinoza so much um, 
the good guy in comparison with Descartes in terms of how we think about ourselves, the world, and nature? Yeah, so um, the history of Descartes is really interesting. I'm going to use him as a key figure, but the ideas that he promoted were, were held by a number of other key philosophers as well, Francis Bacon, for example, and so on. Um, but effectively, you know, in the early years of, of the rise of capitalism, so in the 1500s and 1600s, then there was this need by, um, by early capitalists or by elites uh, to, um, to change the way that people thought about the, the rest of the living world, right? Um, as long as you imagine the living world to be well alive, and uh, if you recognize yourself as interdependent with it, um, then you have a difficult time seeing it as a resource to be just exploited and extracted with impunity, right? Uh, and so, and so these early capitalists were looking for a way to, to change perceptions perceptions about nature and and get people to see it as something like just a standing resource of lifeless material. And that's what Descartes offered us in his um, in his mind body dualism. So all of so the body, but all of also um, but but also the rest of nature became just an object. Um, whereas all that really had any spirit or consciousness or agency was uh, was the human mind, right? Um, and this is what kind of opens the the the, um, the moral possibility of of exploitation not only of nature but also of of human bodies that could be uh, you know put in that category. So virtually all of you know the peasantry, virtually all of women at the time, and uh, virtually all people of color were considered somehow in the category of nature and therefore exploitable. Um, and so we saw, um, you know, I mean, this is on some level kind of the deep philosophical underpinnings of our crisis. We think of the world as somehow separate from us, even in the way we talk about the economy, you know, you know, climate change is like an externality. Pollution is an externality. Like literally we think about it as outside of human society somehow. Um, and so I draw on Spinoza as an example of how even during Descartes' own time, people rejected these ideas and charted a different path. What if we recognized our interdependence with the rest of the living world? What if we refused any fundamental distinction between humans and nature? Um, what if we designed an economy around mutual flourishing and regeneration rather than around exploitation and domination, right? And so I think these are the ideas that we need to draw on as we reimagine the economy uh, for the 21st century. Yeah, and, and, and this part of the book, I think, is really interesting, very profound, and, and I think essential reading less is more how degrowth will save the world. Let's try and be a little bit more concrete. Let's go back to your critique of uh, McAfee's work and of, of this idea of growth and the, the so-called uh, Kuznets graph where things will get better in economic terms and result ultimately in the betterment of uh, the environment. You wrote a very powerful piece, The Myth of America's Green Growth in Foreign Policy of, of, of McAfee's argument, his book, and this general position. Are you suggesting, Jason, that there may also be an element of post-colonialism or racism in this idea of green growth, or is that coincidental? Yeah, so first of all, I should say that I respect um, McAfee's work as a technologist. I think he does, you know, his previous work has been excellent. In this particular book, he, he seems to have jumped into a field he doesn't really know much about, unfortunately. And so uh, ecological economists have long rejected uh, the kinds of claims he's making. And the reason is because he's, he's just using the wrong data, right? Um, it's quite straightforward, really. Like, what he's trying to say is that the, is the US GDP has been growing, even while domestic consumption of materials has been, um, has been stagnating, or in some cases falling. 
in reality, what's been happening is that, is that during the period of globalization over the past 40 years, the US has come to rely on industrial production elsewhere in the world. The US appropriates the GDP from that through global supply chains, but all of the materials involved in extracting and producing and transporting that stuff no longer happens on US shores. It happens uh, in the global south, right? Um, and so once you take the, that broader footprint um, of, the, of the US GDP uh, into the equation, then what becomes clear is there's been no decoupling of GDP from material use at all. In fact, um, they've been rising together really, really tightly. And that's precisely why we're, we're in ecological trouble because uh, there's a very tight relationship between GDP and resource use. So McAfee's data basically is very partial and excludes a lot of that. Um, when you bring it back into the equation, then we, we, ha we have to confront the reality here, which is that more growth in the US economy um, has a direct relationship to ecological impacts. And, uh, so and we have so to let's, let, let's address that what you at least call a reality. Your previous book, To Less Is More, is a divide, a brief guide to global inequality and its solutions. Do we begin um, this, uh, this, this, to, to address this challenge, Jason, by addressing global capitalism or the environment? Do we have to write, at least in your mind, the wrongs of global capitalism before we address the environment? Or, or do we address both together? Because these are big challenges. One is a big challenge, let alone two. How do we begin to address this stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, um, look, I think that we have to change the way our economy works uh, in order to meet our ecological objectives. And this is pretty clear, even when it comes to just, I mean, forget resource use for a second. Let's just talk about the climate uh, crisis. So if we want to keep global warming under 1.5 or 2 degrees, which we, we, we must, <laughs> Then, um, then it's essential that, uh, that we transition to renewable energy as quickly as possible, okay? We have to get to zero emissions by 2050. Now, there's a problem. The more, you know, we cannot do this while growing the economy at the same time. And this is very clear in the literature. The reason is because the more we grow the economy, the more energy it requires, and the more energy it requires, the more difficult it is to supply that energy demand with renewable alternatives in the short time we have left, okay? So this is why in the IPCC's most recent report in 2018, uh, their lead scenario pointed out that you have to significantly scale down energy use in high-income nations. Now, that's not just a matter of like turning off the lights when you, when you leave the room, et cetera, et cetera. The vast majority of energy use comes from industrial production. And so we have to figure out ways to scale down unnecessary industrial production. And that's okay because you know, the vast majority of the stuff that we produce and consume is actually totally unnecessary for a human need or human flourishing. It's primarily organized around elite accumulation. Um, and so, uh, and so we, we need to rethink the way that our production system works, right? So, and, and the key thing here is I think, um, you know, uh, like the reason we can't have that conversation now is because of jobs. Um, if you scale down SUV production and private jet production and arms production, then you have, then you have uh, less labor is required in the economy. That's not thinkable for us because you'll have job losses. And so how do you deal with that? Well, you have to shorten the working week, maybe introduce a public job guarantee. Certainly you want to decommodify foundational. Mm -hmm. We've we had a number of shows about this. Are people going to be watching this, Jason, and they, they'll probably agree with you, but they'll be thinking to themselves, what can I do? We had Aaron Brockovich on the show. Uh, who's just written a book about the water crisis, very much in, in your camp, she suggests that we need to take back agency, human agency. Brokovich is very much, um, I guess in that sense, uh, Descartian in, in, in her belief in, in the power of humans. 
We also had the teenage activist Hannah Tester, who's written a book about plastics on the show, who has the, the rule of five R's, refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. What can ordinary people do, Jason? You know, it's hard for you or I, maybe not you, but it's hard for people like myself to dismantle global capitalism. What can we do that goes beyond simply recycling? Yeah, I think this is important, Andrew. So, um, you know, for me, too often this problem has been framed in terms of consumption. And I get that. And clearly that is a problem. And especially this is particularly a problem for elites, right? Like we know that, you know, and you and I are part of the elites, right? Let's face it. Clearly, clearly. But we, but I'm not part of the 1%. Probably you aren't either. And the 1% is a major driver. The, the next 10% we are a part How of. How much do you have to be, to be part of the 1%? But, but, but what I would say was this, is that, um, is that it's true that consumption is a problem. But ultimately, uh, you know, th this idea of like blaming the consumer can only get you so far in terms of the change you need. And the reason is because, again, um, you, you know, our, our economic system requires perpetual expansion. And therefore, there's incredible pressure to produce new forms of consumption. In a way, consumers like you and I and everybody else become victims of this system. Okay, so, you know, planned obsolescence of our products is one good example, right? Like, we have to consume more products than we actually need. Uh, because they're designed to break down to increase turnover. Why? For corporate profits, right? This is true also of advertising, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so yes, you, you know, we should we should think about scaling down our our consumption. We have the agency to do that. That's important. But but this is not going to be enough unless we start to address the underlying structural drivers of the problem, which have to do with how the economy works. And for that, you know, we have to have these conversations. We have to build solidarities and social movements to uh, to to demand change, which is which is simple to do actually with the right policy changes. Um, and I think that's the conversation we have to be having. Um, last week, uh, Jason, we also had the digital activist Talia Stroud on the, the show. She has a new group called Civic Signals committed to the building of digital public space. Seems like your argument in historical terms is built around the enclosures and the consequences of the enclosures and the destruction of public space, physical public space. Um, is, in political terms, the great challenge not only um, confronting the iniquities of global capitalism, but rebuilding physical public space, perhaps going back yes. to the pre-enclosure Middle Ages? Yeah, so let me clarify. I don't think that anyone wants to go back to the Middle Ages. That's not possible. We live in a modern economy. Well, speak um, yourself. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> but but the good news here is that um, is that yes, if you think about the history of capitalism, which is what my book um, opens with, right? Um, it, it, the the um, the rise of capitalism is basically organized around one enclosure, and two elite accumulation, right? And so what I propose is that if the if this is the basis of capitalism, then a post-capitalist economy is one that is organized around de-enclosure and disaccumulation. Um, and so this is simple to think about. What does de-enclosure look like in our time? It, may, it basically means decommodifying the foundational economy, right? So again, um, you know, universal access to public health care, education, public transportation, renewable energy, um, the things that everybody needs for, uh, you know, to live a flourishing life, those parts of the economy should be decommodified. Now, this is not about going back to some kind of totalitarian Soviet USSR crap. That was a disaster. No one's calling for that. You know, um, that's basically a kind of state control of a capitalist economy. What I'm calling for is something radically different and significantly better. 
Um, so, so yeah, decommodify the, the foundational economy, introduce a public job guarantee so people can have access to, to meaningful, socially useful, ecologically regenerative jobs, um, which is going to be crucial to the transition that we need. Once you have those pieces in place, this is the exciting part. It liberates us to have an open democratic conversation about what sectors of the economy we can reasonably scale down. And that's going to be crucial to enabling a reduction in energy demand and therefore a rapid transition to renewables in a matter of years, not in a matter of decades. Some people listen to this, Jason, think, ah, oh, this guy's just a, a utopian. But you do have some fairly concrete examples in your book of, of places and people who are pioneering this. You talk about the work of the, um, the, the iconic uh, Brazilian photographer, uh, um, Sebastião Salgado, and you also use the example of Costa Rica. So you've gone south, at least from North America, and found some inspiration in Latin America, both in Costa Rica and, and, and in the pioneering work of, of Salgado. Tell me a little bit about those two. Yeah, well, Costa Rica is, is really an inspiring example for lots of reasons. Um, one is that they have a really profoundly uh, ecologically efficient economy. And what I mean by that is um, they have very high levels of human well-being that outstrip those of the USA, right? So they actually beat the USA on key social indicators like, um, like life expectancy, like well-being, happiness, et cetera, et cetera. Despite having a GDP per capita, that's around around uh, 60 to 80 percent less, 80 percent less, I believe. Right. So that's that's crazy because we have this assumption that, you know, the GDP is a direct proxy for human well-being. In fact, that's not true. Um, the relationship between GDP and social indicators breaks down after a pretty low point. Uh, and so there's dozens of countries that outperform the USA with significantly less GDP per capita. And Costa Rica is an amazing example of that. Right. It's um, uh, it's it's an it's an inspiration because it shows what can be accomplished even without high levels of GDP. And uh, talk a little bit about Salgado, uh, about why uh, you you use him as an inspiration in the book. Yeah, Salgado is interesting to me because um, what he did is he uh, you know as his career as a photographer uh, wound down, he went back to his childhood farm in in Brazil and found it was totally degraded, um, basically just barren uh, dust bowl, right? And he he remembered it as this Atlantic rainforest. And what he decided to do in his retirements was to work with his, with his partner uh, to restore this land to Atlantic rainforest. And in a, in a short period of time, he actually succeeded in doing this. So within 12 years, it was, back to, um, it was back to rainforest with high levels of biodiversity, including some endangered species. The springs are sort of flowing again. It's an incredible example of the power of regeneration. Um, when you engage in a kind of reciprocal, regenerative relationship with the land. Yeah, you talked uh, in the book about regenerative agroecology. Um, I actually have another show called uh, Regenerate, which we'll have to get you on as well, focusing on this. What is the regenerative agroecological economy, Jason? Yeah, this is really exciting. Um, you know, we know that our industrial farming system uh, is effectively Cartesian in its orientation. It's organized around treating uh, the soil as a thing, as an object, um, just a standing material, right? And in the process, it's, you know, soil has been heavily degraded. And this is a major contributor to CO2 emissions from land use change, okay? Uh, so regenerative farming uh, reverses this by engaging with the soil as, um, as a kind of living being, you know? I mean, soils are full of life. And so regenerative processes can build life back into the soil, build biodiversity, use polycultural 
um, techniques to create you know, biodiverse farms that are full of insects and wildlife and very abundant and very fertile because the soil is regenerated. And this um, not only produces healthy, uh, delicious tasting food, but also sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere and stores it uh, in the earth. And it, this can be a major contributor to our fight against, against climate breakdown, sequestering at least four gigatons of carbon per year, which is a major part of our, um, of our solutions. That's, ver that's, that's very hopeful to me. Well, Jason, we're going to have to get you on the Regenerate show to speak specifically about the regenerative uh, agroecology. Your new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, is a really profound read. It's not only philosophical, it's historical, it's polemical. I'm, I'm sure I agree with everything in it. I, I guess you probably don't either, but it certainly makes a very good case for degrowth as a way of finally fixing our planetary crisis. So Jason, I want to thank you so much. And we will look forward to seeing you again very soon, perhaps on the Regenerate show. Thanks very much, Andrew. It was good to speak to you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.